Today's message is called Instructions for Life. Um, we are skipping uh, the Hall of Faith, which is found in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, not because I'm just trying to be like countercultural or something, and you all know that there's some great stories in there. I want to encourage you to study chapter 11 for yourselves this week. There are some mysterious figures. There are some figures that you wouldn't pick to put in there. Mm. Um, there's, you know, like a, a prostitute, a murderer, a thief. Uh, okay. So like, there's some people in there talking, like they get talked about and in a good light because they had believing loyalty to God. But today is our last message in our series in Hebrews. And I got the idea. If you might notice, I saw somebody, uh, mouth the words, the life logo right there comes from the game of life. How many of you ever played the game of life? Okay. So a good handful of us, um, the game of life, my family likes to play it. It's a, obviously it's a popular board game. Um, it, it I don't need to tell you what it does. It takes you through the journey of life, right? Whether you go to college and what job you get, what spouse, how many kids and all that kind of stuff. But there's a fun fact that uh, you probably don't know, which is this year it is 159 years old. Yes, 159 years old. Go ahead, fact check me, sweetheart. Um, Milton... (laughs) Sorry, that was too salty at the beginning, too salty at the start. Okay, so uh, yes, Milton Bradley, uh, back in those days, uh, they had what they had, what they called, we, we call it today a playroom or a den, but back then uh, they would have a parlor. And in that parlor, families would get together and they would play games. And this was the start. This was one of the most popular at the very beginning of them starting to play board games. And so, um, yeah, 159 years strong. And so I I thought about that game and the game of life and life is not a game by any means. Uh, it's a serious thing and you've got serious choices to make and we've got serious amounts of stress and we've got serious amounts of grief and we've got some issues that we face throughout our life. And I really think that it's pretty awesome that the author of Hebrews leaves for us some instructions for life that are listed in chapters 12 and 13. At the close of the letters uh, that are written specifically in the New Testament that are written to the church, they oftentimes have either just a few sentences or maybe a whole chapter. And it's like final instructions. It's, hey, say hi to your mom for us. You know, thank her for the offering she sent. And don't forget to do this and do that and do this. So chapters 12 and chapters 13 of Hebrews offer us some instructions for life. So what I want you to do today is I want you to think like you are the person who is receiving this letter and we're going to go, I call this popcorn style. We're going to hit some of them pretty briefly and some of them we're going to drive home But we're going to look at some points of instruction that we find in chapter 12 and 13, which I think are really, really needed for us to be reminded of today. In fact, I can say this with absolute certainty. Someone in this room and someone who listens to this message needs at least one of these, if not four or five or six of these in their own life to be strengthened. So let's start in chapter 12, verse 14. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Otherwise, the words will be on the screen for you. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would illuminate your word and cause transformation in our willing hearts today by your word and by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 14 says this, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The word strive there, it's not something that you use in common everyday language any longer. But the word strive there means to make great effort. I was told a story this morning about a child that was trying to make great effort to avoid a punishment. uh, Running through the house away from the person trying to catch her. It was not a fun game of, you know, chase the kid. It was when I get to you. You better pray. (laughs) Okay, so they were making great effort. So think about it like this. Make great effort to have peace with everyone. Now, I shouldn't have to explain the word everyone to you, but I will. That means people on the opposite political party. That means the boss you don't like. That means the spouse you're not getting along with, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, whatever the case may be. Strive for peace with everyone. That means even people in the church. Did you know some people in the church don't act right sometimes? I'm not preaching to you today. You just tell your friend that's not acting right in their church to listen to this. No, I'm just kidding. So, but peace, let me tell you what peace is. Peace is not simply the absence of disturbance or from disturbance or conflict, but it is true freedom. So it's freedom from disturbance. Uh, if, if I am having a peaceful stroll, that means I don't have a worry. I don't have a care. I'm not concerned with other things around me. I am just experiencing freedom. So it's not just an absence of conflict because you'll have conflict in relationships. Can I hear an amen from somebody but my wife? Amen. (laughs) Right? I mean, we'll have conflict. Okay, I'll move on. Sorry, I'm too funny for you to handle this morning. I got it. Okay. It says here, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I texted a buddy of mine. I was eyeball deep in some commentaries this week, studying the word holy. And I know the phrase that we often use, we talked about it in the Leviticus series, and we understand that holy, when you say holy, you think act right, live right, do God's will kind of thing. But here's the thing. The truest definition that I could find is this, not just set apart for God, but set apart solely for God. So that should shape the way that we think when we look at that verse and it says that we should strive, we should make great effort for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Based on last week's message, we have to understand that we should strive and make great effort to live according to God's word. Here's the deal. Many people strive for many things. And if you're like me, you could probably make greater effort to enjoy peace with every. One. I came up with this this week as I studied through this, and I, I think these are two good points to share just out of this verse, this instruction for life. Selfishness is an enemy of peace. 
You look at countries that are in conflict together and they are not experiencing peace. Somebody on one side wants something and somebody on the other side wants something else. And they're not happy because they're not getting what they want. The truth is selfishness is an enemy of peace. It's the same way as these lights just continue to come on. You know, we just stare in wonder and amazement. It's the same thing in our own life, though. It's the times when I am the most selfish in my relationship with my wife that I am not experiencing peace because I am trying to get my way. On the opposite side of this, selflessness is the catalyst for peace. Jesus was a peaceful person. Sure, there were conflicts in his life and things that happened, but you can see in his selflessness, in the way that he poured himself out for others, that he lived a peaceful life. So if we're going to strive for peace, if we're going to strive for holiness, if we're going to do those things, we've got to make greater effort to be selfless, not more effort to be selfish. Because we don't need to read a book about selfishness. We don't, we don't need to learn how to do that. We know how to do that. We need to read God's word, that book, about how to be selfless. In fact, there's another verse in scripture. It says that he may increase and I would decrease because I'm trying to make myself less. Let's go on to verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God And that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. This is one of the core messages of my ministry and my life. This message based in this verse and the following verse actually has a strong warning. In fact, if I were to put it to you in my terms, the root of bitterness is not only the cause and the destruction, the cause of destruction in people's relationships with one another, but the Bible tells us very clearly it opens up the door wide for many, many other sins, including sexual immorality simply because we have the root of bitterness. And it's evident in a lot of lives today. It is relentless. Listen to me. It is relentless in its growth and its destruction. So if we allow that in our life, or you have allowed a root of bitterness, the way that that happens, I'm going to tell you how it happened in your life so that you understand bitterness is the fruit of unforgiveness. So it's a sin that grows from the seeds of unforgiveness. And if it's not kept in check by the Holy Spirit's root killer, kind of like I do roundup sometimes in the parking lot and kill the weeds. And it's pretty amazing. The next day they're brown and dead laying on the, and the roots are gone. When a root of bitterness is starting to form in our life due to unforgiveness that we have, the Holy Spirit really can help you and he can be the root killer that you need because unforgiveness and resentment towards other people, when it's left unchecked, it's an invasive species that covers every aspect of the heart. It's so near and dear to me because I've had many temptations to be bitter and to hold unforgiveness. Uh, many of you would know the story and I won't share it today, but in our last pastorate, we had many opportunities for that because sometimes people in the church don't act right. Right. And, uh, and so if you've ever been hurt 
here's, here's what I'll tell you. If you've ever been hurt by someone and you've been reminded of that hurt later and you've given way to those thoughts about, you're right, she shouldn't have treated me like that. He shouldn't have done that. You know what? Who does he think he is? If you start heading down that path, you are, you're tilling the soil and scratching it so that that root of bitterness can be formed. So let me tell you about forgiveness. Uh, a couple things, and if this hits you in the heart today, I want you to take some notes. The first thing is this. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a choice. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. The second thing is forgiveness is not denying that you were hurt. Yes, I was hurt. And I need to emotionally, in my emotional health, I need to be able to say, you hurt me. I forgive you. I own up to that. Okay. Number three is forgiveness is not approval of what was done to you. Because you forgive someone, what you're doing is you're releasing them from the ability to grow in your heart that dark spot that God really wants to uproot. What you're doing in that moment, you're not giving them approval of, yeah, what you did to me was perfectly a-okay. So I share this with our kids, and I don't know who came up with it, but I'll give credit to my wife. Starting from the age really, really little, we started to teach them. If someone hits them or someone mistreats them at school, someone, their own sister, takes something from them, when the apology comes, we don't teach our kids to say, it's okay, because it's not okay. They stole, they hurt, they lied, they whatever. We taught them from a very young age to say, I forgive you. And I don't say that for a pat on the back because I'm a perfect parent. Lord knows I'm not. But I'm trying to give you just the insight of what we're trying to do with our own children to raise them up so that they fully understand hurt is going to happen in this world and it's not okay, but I can forgive. Amen? And the, the other thing about forgiveness is it doesn't immediately reestablish trust. If I walked up to Meg right now and slapped her in the face, she, she might not want to sit next to me the next time we're in church. And that's okay. That's her right because she's using her brain and she's saying, I'm going to avoid that hurt. And that's okay too. But next time she sees me, she needs to have that thought of, I forgive him. That's the thing that we all have to do because forgiveness is a process. It's not one and done. It is for the rest of your life. Okay. We're instructed by Jesus to forgive others as we've been forgiven. The Bible says this, or else God himself will not forgive you. So forgiveness is free. Give lots of it away. And when your supply is wiped out, there's always more to be given. Verse 25, let's jump there. Chapter 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Somebody say amen. <laughs> okay, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So the point here is this, that you should honor those who are in authority and honor those who serve you the word of God, whether they were your Sunday school teacher, a small group leader uh, in this fall. We'll have small group that's meeting at a house here in Clinton. We're excited about that. You honor those who bring the word of God. And I'm thankful for a church 
that does not refuse him who is speaking. <laughs> Amen? I'm thankful that you honor your pastor and first lady. All right, look at verse 28. This is the end of verse 28. It says this, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Verse 29, For our God is a consuming fire. Now, that might ring a bell because we just sang a song about God being a consuming fire. We had a little bit of joy in that song, not a, not a whole lot of fear, but I want to just set you right as you read God's word. Consuming fires do something important. They destroy things, right? Okay, But then there's something else that comes after destruction, and that can be new life. So we shouldn't be necessarily fully afraid of God as a consuming fire, but we should understand that worship is not on our terms. That first part, or the last part of verse 28, it says, Worship Him, give Him acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So it's on God's terms. So what you don't like the music? You better learn it. I'm sorry. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. All right. Don't shut me down. Listen, you've got to understand. I've been in worship services where I didn't enjoy every song that they sang. I've been in worship services where they sang a song and I thought, "Mm, those words sound a little bit weird. I'm not sure that's totally in the Bible. Listen, I need to give God acceptable worship myself with reverence and awe. It's me and him. I'm not... I hope I'm going to heaven with everybody who's on this stage with me when they're leading worship. But God is going to hold me accountable for what I bring to him. So I come to him on his terms, not on my terms. So what? It's a little bit chilly in here. Bring a jacket. (laughs) Okay, the two people who are always hot and ready to... Okay, and as you can see, I got a little fan pointing to the back of my head right here, okay? I like it. My daughter was in here for prayer this morning. She said, Daddy, it's so cold in here. I said, baby, it's going to keep everybody awake today. And it's so hot outside. Okay, sorry, that's not part of my message. Worship on God's terms. He's worthy of your worship, and he gets angry when you do not worship him with a pure motivation in your heart. And here's the deal. I know I'm going to step on some toes when I say this, but some of y'all don't worship. Listen, I've been at funerals that were more exciting than some worship services. If you're saying amen, let's make sure next week this ain't a funeral. Amen? Let's make sure that we're worshiping God. So here's the deal. We have a few guests lined up to speak over the next few weeks. I'm ending the series today. And then we've got a missionary that's coming, that's going to Ecuador. He'll be with us next Sunday. And another missionary uh, the next week, which is one that we support all the time. And they are at Chi Alpha in Old Miss. It's a college ministry, the same one that we have here at Mississippi College. And they are kind of our coaches and that kind of thing. But after we have those guest speakers, we are getting into a worship series here in our church. And I hope you get excited about it and don't start checking out, okay? Don't be like, oh, when's that worship series start? Yeah, I'm going to be staying home. No, come, because it's going to be exciting. You're going to learn something maybe you didn't know before. All right, soapbox, put it away. 13, verse 1, here we go. Let brotherly, we could say sisterly, Love continue. 
Anybody else in here remember the days when they called you brother or sister? Did y'all ever say that about somebody else? Like, oh, that's brother John, that's sister Susan or whatever. Okay. Um, I called some, I called a pastor this past week and was talking to him and I know him well, but I call him by his first name because we're, we've got a friendship. Uh, he pastors here in Mississippi. His name is Austin Bishop. So I opened with, I said, Hey Austin. I said, you know, I thought as I dialed your number, am I, should I call you pastor Bishop? And he said, no, I said, well, what do your people call you? And he said, no, well, they call me brother Austin. And I said, Hey, it's still around. People are still doing this. The whole idea is let brotherly love continue. How many of you have ever had a brother or a sister? Okay. Put your hands down. How many of you are only children? How many of you wish you were only? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. Listen, (laughs) choose love. Rather than gossip, rather than division, brotherly love is key. Sisterly love, that familial love. I love you as a brother or sister in Christ. In fact, 1 Peter 4, 8 says this, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Come on, somebody. If you need your sin covered, I need an organ sometimes to just... Little pipe up in the background, okay? Verse two, here we go. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, this is so interesting. There's a supernatural realm, and we absolutely believe that it exists. We know that it exists. Um, Our God is a supernatural, not a natural being, but he is supernatural above all else. And so the writer, the author of Hebrews is telling them, don't hold back your hospitality towards strangers because you never know who you're entertaining. It might be an angel. So be kind to everyone. I know this is hard that we live in a dark world and you're scared out of your mind to help a stranger. I get it. You should be cautious be armed. Okay. Uh, but d- listen, but don't check your, br- don't check your brain at the door, right? Don't do something stupid, but don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And if you're going to show it to strangers, you better show it to your friends and your family here in the body of Christ. Amen. I love that our ladies, if anything happens in someone's life here in the church that's connected to us, they immediately start messaging each other and it's not gossip. Ooh, did you hear what Ty did? No, it's, hey, did you know Ty needs some meals this week? Let's get together and we're going to bring her some meals. That's what it's all about. Hospitality. Amen. All right, moving along. Verse three, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Now, I've preached this, and this is another sort of motto that I live according to, and I want you to develop this too. Any of my students at Clinton Christian Academy can say this as well, that have been in my classes. Context, the surrounding information, deepens my understanding of the content. So let me clarify for you verse 3, if you'll show that again. All prisoners are not mentioned here. 
Now, I don't have a problem with you having compassion on people who are in jail, who've had their rights and all that kind of stuff. That's not what the author is talking about. You got to know the context. So they're not mentioned, all prisoners, and that's not what's intended. This is referring to those who've been persecuted for their faith. He's talking to the body of Christ that's receiving this letter, and he's saying, remember those who've gotten thrown in jail and who've been mistreated. They're also in the body of Christ, even though they're far away, because they've been mistreated for their faith. So we've got to remember those in the what we would call the persecuted church. And let me tell you, friends, I am no politician, but I will tell you, persecution has existed here in America against Christianity, and it is ever increasing. The tsunami wave is building and has been for years. And I've got to tell you that in case you're just not wise to the news. But here's the deal. According to Open Doors USA... Listen to this number, 245 million Christians worldwide, including America, are experiencing high levels of persecution for their faith and or are imprisoned for their faith. Could lose their life, their family, their belongings. Put it, just put that number in your mind. 245, not 245 people, not 245,000, 245 million Christians around the globe currently are experiencing high levels of persecution. So we should pray for those who are imprisoned for their faith. Verse 4, chapter 13, verse 4. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I wrote in my notes here that God will not stand idly by while people destroy the institution he created that we call the family. Amen? Any sexual contact outside of marriage will be judged. The Bible is clear about that. We need to be teaching and reinforcing this even for our children. Lord knows the tsunami wave from the other direction is ever increasing in today's culture, trying to push a narrative on our families and our children. A biblically based sexual ethic needs to be taught to our kids. I say this because I attended Christian school all of my life. I've taught high schoolers in a Christian school as well. And the truth is, we desperately need a revival of a biblical morality in our nation. And it starts with us as parents and as grandparents. It starts with us. We cannot forget the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. He says this, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. So that's the popular path. Verse 14 says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Just look at that verse for a moment. Jesus own words say the gate is narrow and the way is hard. That's not the message you might hear from some other places about all you got to do is just sign up for this Jesus thing and everything in your life just gets put immediately together and everything's wonderful and roses. And actually Jesus himself said, life 
that, that way to follow him is hard, but it leads to life. And those who find it are few. But he gives us the strength to do that. Amen? So we, we need a biblical-based moral compass. If you choose whatever you want to choose, you are not living according to God's way because his ways are different than our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. So we have to be very careful. Verse 5 of chapter 13 in Hebrews says this. This is an interesting one. Talking, Meg talked about giving in our offering earlier and tithing. It says this, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You say, pastor, I don't have enough money to fall in love with it. (laughs) Right? Okay. (laughs) Can I get an amen? Right? Okay. But here's the deal. I know some poor people who have the love of money in their heart. You don't have to be rich to have the love of money. And in fact, I'm going to tell you something. Our church, in case you don't know and you're new to our family, a few years ago, we were blessed by a couple who are in business. They've got a, a business in Texas that's amazing and really profitable. They gave our, they've never visited our church, but we know them. My wife and I know them from previous ministry. And they gave into our ministry here $150,000. They said, what do you need? We'll wire it to the church. And it was there the next day. And we were able to do all sorts of renovations. We did run out before we, this carpet. mm. Okay, the carpet, the front, we need a sign. I got you. I know the gutters. We didn't get it all done, but we did amazing things with what God gave to us. They are filthy rich and they don't love money. So I know poor people who love money and I do know rich, wealthy people who don't love money. They really truly believe that they are just funnels for what God has given to them for them to pour it into other people. And I say, do it again, Lord Jesus. Sorry, okay. God is your provider. You need to hear your pastor say these words because you need to believe what God's word says. And you who know my life know that I've been leading or leaning rather on him as my provider. So contentment, here's the deal. Contentment is a missing ingredient in many, many people's lives. There are lots of people who are just generally unhappy about everything. Okay. But then when you're generally unhappy about the things in your life, not the people, but the things like money, then you're missing out on contentment. And comparison is a thief of joy. We say this, and it's been said before, but comparison, comparing yourself to somebody else, that really can rob you of joy. Now, I I love pictures of the beach. Like, if you go on Instagram and do the hashtag Bora Bora, you can see... Oh my goodness, all these people pulling up in yachts and getting off in these little huts hovered over the water with glass floors and you can watch the fish. I'm never going to get there. I need to be careful because I will compare my life to somebody else's and I'll think that my life is way worse when in fact I probably have a lot more joy than some of those people spending the night in that exotic location because I've got God in my life. I've got him as my, so you've got to understand you, you shouldn't be comparing yourself. Women, you compare yourself to other women. You compare their parenting. 
You compare their hairstyle. You compare their their walk of life or their way of life. Men, we do it too. We want the newest grill, the newest truck, the newest whatever. Be careful because if you're not, you could be giving in to the temptation to love money. If, if this is true, if this verse is true, and he has said at the end there, I will never leave you nor forsake you, then God's got this. Be happy with what you have and just hold on because he is a God who always keeps his promise. He said he'll provide. He will provide. Yes, I've bitten my fingernails down to the bone waiting for him to provide in my life at different seasons. But God is a good God. He's faithful. Uh, we're all about the Bible around here and people get it twisted all the time. So I just want to set you straight about this. People for generations have been misled to believe that money is the root of all evil. And that is not what the Bible says. People have been lying to you and saying that all these years. You might have heard grandma or somebody else mention this. You know, money's the root of all. No, it's not. The Bible says very clearly something different. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 is where it gets misquoted. And here's what it says. It says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. That means I love money so much, I'm going to step on somebody else and move them out of the way on the corporate ladder. That means I'm going to be tempted to be a thief or not have integrity because I have a love of money. So it's the root. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Another word could be given themselves a lot of pain and grief. Through this craving, the love of money, some have wandered away from the, the truth of God's word. This is a serious thing. So we should be careful. Why do we encourage you to give? A, because God says it, but B, because it's good for you. Because the more you keep, the less you have, actually. It's a biblical truth. you got to look into it. It's, it's better than you're shouting right now. This instruction for life is important. Keep your life free from the love of money. So how to do that? Let me tell you this. Number one is constantly remind yourself of this simple truth. People are more important than things. Sure, I'd love a new house, a new car, a new boat. I heard it's not good for you to own a boat. You should just have a friend who owns a boat. Is that right? Because there's too much maintenance and there's a lot of work and all that stuff. It's the same thing, I guess, with a plane. Just know a friend who owns the plane and takes care of everything. You just get on it kind of thing. Okay, But here's the deal. Constantly remind yourself that people are more important than things. We tell that to our kids from a young age. They're fighting over a small toy. Listen, is it worth ruining your relationship with your Sister, you can't have that conversation with a two-year-old, I know. But I'm saying, is it worth ruining the relationships in your life just because you're simply trying to push people out of the way to get more stuff? Another one is this, number two, and how to not let the love of money invade your life is be content with what you have because I guarantee you, you'll have more joy. All right, verse seven, I'm going quick. You didn't know this, but I got 14 points today and we're almost halfway through. Okay, verse seven, now you're scared. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. 
Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So you should be able to imitate the faith of those who are your spiritual leaders. And I know that many of you do. You have those who have been in your life, uh, maybe a Sunday school teacher or a previous pastor or maybe even myself, that you can imitate their faith. Godly leaders should have an unshakable faith that is worthy of being copycatted, worthy of being duplicated in your own life. You're to imitate the faith you see in myself and in my wife and in others who you consider spiritual leaders. This is a tall order for us as leaders, those who are spiritual leaders, those who lead our worship ministry, first impressions, children's ministry, production, all of those, all of our lives, not just me. I'm not solo up here. The only way this happens is with a team. And can we just give it up for the team that serves? Come on, clap for them this morning. I'm so thankful, so thankful, really, truly, for those who serve. Each one of us wants to live a life that's God-honoring, that's worthy of you emulating. That's important. Verse 9, just the first part, chapter 13, verse 9. It says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Let me tell you, read the Bible. I try to make sure that I have biblical basis for every statement I make when I'm on this platform. Because I do not want to share with you my human assumption of what I think the Bible meant. I want to tell you what it actually says and how you can live it out in your life. So it would be fun to listen to messages that tickle your ears. The Bible actually has a verse, has a strong correction to people who they just want somebody to tell them something good. Tell them what, tell me some good news today. Let me, let me have the good stuff and never actually talk about the deeper stuff that really needs transformation in my life. So dig deep in the Bible, in the areas that you don't understand. Don't just throw the Bible out or don't just give up. Dig deep into the word of God. Everything you see in God's word is significant. So don't gloss over it. If you do gloss over it, you'll be given to strange teachings. I told you last week um, in my message, which if you were not here, I encourage you to listen to a message on eternal security. Uh, I didn't read those quotes and I won't read them today, but I can talk to you after service and tell you there are quotes from pastors with reverend as their title who say, it doesn't matter what I do. I've been saved. I could sleep with a thousand women. I'm still going to be up there next to Jesus. If they're saying that, however they're preaching on their stage in their pulpit is probably influencing the lives of other people and leading them in a diverse or a strange way. So we've got to be so careful. We've got to read. We got to be people of the word of God. Amen. Amen. So read it this week. I heard something that broke my heart and kind of disgusted me um, recently. I think I told you a stat a couple months back about readership of the Bible. I heard an updated stat and it said somewhere around only 20% of quote unquote Bible believing church attending Christians read their Bible outside of the church building. So with that statistic, I know that that's somewhat true for some of us some days. So you better start reading. 
read a verse, pick a devotional. Lord knows we've got an app that has like 1800 versions of the Bible, okay? With different languages and all this other stuff. We have access, you, you can read it in different languages, but you could read it in even easier language than I'm reading it today. If you're having a hard time, I'm telling you, there's some good truth in that word. And God put it there for a reason. It's for your good, amen? Okay, verse 16, chapter 13, verse 16. Do not neglect to do good, and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. A selfless and sacrificial life is pleasing to God. That's what this says. Not a selfish, stingy life. How many of you can you remember, or maybe even now today, you have a problem sharing? I'm looking at some younger people. You got a problem with sharing, okay? Some of, okay, some of you like husbands, you'll understand this. Your wife is probably more open to sharing than you are when it comes to food, right? Okay, he's, he's looking away. Okay, no, uh-uh, no, it's not that way. Okay, so here's the deal. Some of us um, ha- need to listen to this part where it says, share what you have, Right? Um, I, I, the old jokes of like, you know, she's like, oh, I'll get a salad. You get the steak and the fries, baby. I'll just get a salad. Oh, can I have some of your fries? And then takes them over. Okay. So I get it. We've lived through that. I don't share well, do I, baby? I really don't. Like I, I have swatted a waiter's hand away who tried to pick up a plate too early. I was like, bro, there's another bite on this thing. What are you doing? It's not empty. Stop. Okay, sorry. It's turning into comedy hour. I didn't mean for that. But here's what I'm saying. Share everything you've got. You're not going (laughs) to. So says my wife really loud for the recording. Amen. Uh, Share what you've got. Here's a simple way to actually avoid sharing. Go to a buffet like I'm doing today. (laughs) Okay. She can get what she wants. and She keeps it on her plate. I get what. Okay. Listen. You can't take it with you. Elvis Presley, one of the greatest musicians, singers of all time, historical figure, didn't take anything with him. Think of somebody like Bill Gates. He's not taking anything with him. Any president we've ever had, any leader of a country or organization, they can't take it with them. You've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it, have you? I know it's funny to think about, but here's the deal. You can't take it with you. I will tell you, I have visited a cemetery in New Jersey. Very interesting story. A Chinese businessman had a younger son, had a son who was just coming of age to come into the business world. And he died tragically in a car accident. He loved Mercedes Benz so much. The son did. He actually, the dad who's filthy, dirty, rich, actually had the cast of a full-size Mercedes-Benz, and it sits in the cemetery as his tomb marker. And I think to myself, you know, that's a dumb waste of money because he ain't driving a car where he is. He's either flying or he's not flying, okay? So he's, he's either floating around up there with God and God's presence or he's in torment and punishment. So what's the deal? You can't take it with you. Give it away. If you need to know how to give it away, I can tell you how to give it away. <laughs> I, got, I got four ways for you to give. Okay. Shoo. 
This is good. I didn't even have that in my notes. Thank you. No, but here's the deal. Give it away. Give it away to a neighbor. I, I, I talk about my wife uh, in good terms. I talk about my wife because she'll make something in the house and she'll go knock on a neighbor's door. She don't know if they like cake, but she'll drop off an extra cake. Somebody's like, I want to be her neighbor. <laughs> okay. um, you know, that kind of thing. Just share what you have. Think about others. Come on, this is an instruction for life. And instead of thinking about your neighbor who never came over with a cake, why don't you be the neighbor with the cake? Right? Come on, somebody. Oh, man, this is good. Where was I at? Verse 16. Okay, we're going to verse 17. Obey your leaders. Here it is again. It's talking about honoring those who speak the word of God. Here, verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Mm, for that would be of no advantage to you. <laughs> Why would it not be an advantage to you? Because if you make your leader's life miserable, things don't go well. Right? I mean, that happens on your secular job too. And here's the deal. I'm not telling you to blindly just obey and submit. But obedience and submission to God are paramount to the Christian life. And, I, and I'm not saying, and nor will you find any biblical evidence that if anyone ever tells you to do something against God's word, that you're to obey them. No, if the president of my country tells me to do something that is counterintuitive to God's word, I have to disobey. In fact, you can read stories about the apostles who said, it's better to obey God rather than man. I've got to pick my obedience. I've got to pick the one I obey and I better choose to obey and submit to God. Remember this, your preferences are not on the same level as God's word. The reason I preach these messages, A, because it's in God's word and because it helps us, but B, I preach them freely because we don't have that problem right now. I'm not preaching this against some little schism in the church. I'm telling you, your preference matters less than you obeying and submitting to your leaders who are over you, who are in God, trying to lead you in the right way. You do not have to obey anyone who goes against God's word. I've told teenagers before, they say, you know, well, what if my parents tell me I can't go to church? Well, then you have the right to disobey. Pray that God changes their heart. But the word of God says, obey me, talking about God. So find a church to go to. If your spouse tells you you can't go to church, you tell them you can go somewhere else because I'm going to church. Because God's word says that. Your spouse gives you a problem for writing a check for tithes. I'm obeying God. I'm submitting to him. I'm sorry that you're missing out on that hundred bucks, but we got to pay our tithes. There's things that we've got to do and stand strong, firm in. And lots of churches have been torn apart by people who are just downright selfish and want it their way or the highway. I praise God this isn't one of those churches. Don't be that guy or that girl. I've met him. <laughs> I could tell you his name and his address. Verse 18, moving right along. Pray for us. Pray for me. <laughs> Pray for me. You say, Pastor, you preached on that root of bitterness. You still got it. No, I don't. I'm just being silly. I thank God. I thank God that I'm free today, more free than I've ever been. Listen to what he says. He says, Pray for us, for 
we want to be sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. So pray for your leaders. The author of Hebrews is writing this letter to his audience. And I'm telling you, 1900 plus years later, your pastor is standing here today as your spiritual leader. And I'm telling you, pray for me. I want you to pray for me, that God would give me wisdom. Stop being selfish and just praying about your you know, sprained ankle. Pray for somebody else, amen? Okay, pray for me. Pray for wisdom. Pray for strength in the midst of temptation. Pray that the Lord provides. Pray that God gives me clear vision and our team clear vision. Pray for my marriage. Pray for my wife. Pray for my kids. That's a biblical instruction for you to pray for those who, you mean even if they did something I didn't like? Yeah, you're still supposed to pray for them. I don't know if you checked this out, but in the word of God, it actually says that you're supposed to be kind even to those who are mean to you and that you're supposed to pray for those who despitefully use you. Whew, okay. So make this your daily habit, please. I'm begging you as your pastor, pray for me. How much better would every church in the world be if every believer in that church prayed daily for their pastor, his family, and the leadership team that runs that, that whole deal. How much better? So make that your daily thing. Okay, here are the final words. You thought, wow, you got through 14? Yes. Here we are. Worship team, would you come join me? Here are the final words that the author writes in verse 20 and 21. He says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will. Verse 21 continues, Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. I want him to equip me with everything good so that I can do his will and that I can work what's pleasing in his sight. I want you to stand today and I want you to think about these instructions for life. I want you to consider, maybe one of them popped out to you, maybe several of them, but I want to challenge you. Don't be the Christian who doesn't read their Bible this week. Don't be the Christian who's stingy and doesn't share life and love and even finance and belongings with others this week. Be the Christian who obeys God's word. Be the Christian this week who prays for their leaders. God's word says that he's never left us or forsaken us and he never will. So if we're convinced of that, if we've got confidence in his competence, the fact that he knows what's going on and that he'll do what he's promised, then we can make it through this life 